everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris, and it's good to be back with you podcasting today. All right, so first I wanted to hit the peace agreement with Israel and its Arab neighbors. I haven't yet got a chance to talk about that. Um, so as far as I understand it, it's a uh, agreement that basically the United Arab Emirates, and it looks like either some other countries, Arab countries, have followed suit or are planning on following suit, that basically recognize for diplomatic reasons the existence of Israel, which is uh, not something that Arab countries have been prone to do. It certainly has happened before. I think Jordan had a similar diplomatic relationship with Israel uh, before that, and maybe Egypt, maybe. But in any case, the United Arab Emirates is now on board, and it looks like some others will follow suit. Now, this is, uh, from what I understand, a pretty big deal, mainly because Israel didn't really have to give up anything to get that concession. They didn't have to give up, you know, uh, settlements and different kinds of things. There was just basically settlements that they had said that they were going to take that they didn't really have any intention of taking, but they said, okay, well, we're not going to take those. As far as I understand it, I'm probably missing some details here. It's a great uh, achievement diplomatically, and I think it should be celebrated for that. And I hope it does uh, lead to better relationships in the uh, Middle East. And hopefully it does turn into something good. Although, as we know, the Middle East is kind of a powder keg, and it really could all go out the window tomorrow if something happens or whatever. But really the question is, does this have anything to do with the end times. And to answer that, I think we need to back up a little bit and talk about what, why it is that we think that a peace treaty is what we need to watch for. Because in my mind, the concept of a peace agreement has always been kind of a trigger, basically, as somebody that had kind of grown up, in a sense, knowing about Hal Lindsey. And he'd always told me that the main thing to watch for was a, a peace treaty, a seven-year peace treaty being made between Israel and its neighbors, and that the Antichrist would play nice for that first three and a half years, and then, then at the midpoint he would just act uh, act crazy and, and tear up the peace agreement. And that's basically the scenario that I was looking for for a long time. And I don't think that the truth of the matter is that much different, but it is not what the Bible says. So let's look at what the Bible says, and where do we get this idea of a peace agreement? Well, it's kind of a mishmash of two um, two different passages. The first is from Daniel 9. This is where the 70th week prophecy uh, is given. This is where we get the entire idea of the seven-year period, which I totally agree with, of course. Um, and it's this particular section is, is talking about the Antichrist. It's Daniel 9, 27, where it says, He will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of that week he will bring sacrifices and offerings to a halt, on the wing of abominations will come one who destroys until the decreed end is poured out on the one who destroys. So the idea is he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. So that's that's it. That's the peace agreement idea. Now, when this is being interpreted, they'll usually say, well, a covenant. What's the modern equivalent of a covenant? Well, it's kind of like a contract, okay? So that's kind of like a peace, peace treaty. So the idea of a peace treaty has been sort of superimposed. It's taken the concept of a covenant, which is obviously a very biblical concept, and said, well, covenant in our modern day means peace treaty. So he's going to make a peace treaty. Now, right there, I mean, I agree that probably if a peace treaty was indeed what was going to happen, then it, the Bible might talk about it as a covenant. But one interesting part of this um, 
idea. You may have noticed that this is kind of a weird wording. He will confirm a covenant. Some say that he will make a strong covenant. Some say he will make a covenant strong. If you look at five different Bible translations, you're probably going to get five different translations of that that line right here. And it's because it's a pretty odd construction, uh, apparently. I don't I don't read Hebrew, but I do, as David Guzik says, read those people that do read Hebrew. And what what can be known here, and this is a private interpretation, this is something that people believe all over the spectrum, that when you dig down into the details of this line, it's saying that the Antichrist will make an already existing covenant strong. The covenant is not something he com- makes out of nowhere. The covenant has already been has already existed, but he makes it firm. He does something to strengthen that already existent covenant. And so that's something that you need to plug into that. And and if you don't, if you don't buy that, then you need to go back and do that study for yourself. Is what Daniel 9, 27, that first line is, is that true? What I just said is the covenant something that must have been already existing according to how this should be translated. If so, then, you know, at least plug that into how you understand this so-called peace treaty. Because then again, you have to also say that the covenant means a peace treaty. The other passage that is a lot of times brought up here to sort of bolster the case that uh, this is talking about a peace treaty is 1 Thessalonians 5.3, which says, um, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So the idea is that when it says that people are saying peace and security, that peace and security that these people are saying uh, right before sudden destruction comes upon them is the false peace that the Antichrist makes at the start of the seven-year period at that covenant or the quote-unquote peace treaty. So that's where they get the idea of a peace treaty at all, where peace is even comes into this, is what I'm trying to say, is by in, inserting 1 Thessalonians 5.3. That's where they can justify the idea that this quote-unquote covenant is a quote-unquote peace treaty. Now, the problem with this is that if you put it in context, this sudden destruction that will come upon them when they're saying peace and security is the day of the Lord. It says, uh, for you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them suddenly. So the while the people are saying sudden uh, peace and security, then the day of the Lord will come upon them suddenly. Now, the problem there, of course, is that in the pre-trib mind specifically, the day of the Lord is the entire seven-year period. It starts the moment the quote-unquote peace treaty, quote-unquote covenant is made, the very moment, and we know that's actually the definition of what starts the seven-year period, the covenant being made. So there's no getting around that. The covenant is the first thing that happens that starts the seven-year period. And in the pre-trib mind, the entire seven-year period is the day of the Lord. But when you put this verse in context, these people saying peace and security uh, and then the day of the Lord will happen means that the peace and security had to have been happening before the seven-year period began. So the pre-trib mind actually has, if they want to make First Thessalonians 5.3, people saying peace and security, be about the false peace that the Antichrist makes, then they need this peace, necessarily this peace and security, according to First uh, Thessalonians 5.2, says that this peace and security is pre-last seven-year period. 
my point here is that these two verses, Daniel 9.27 about the covenant and 1 Thessalonians 5.3 about the peace and security, they're never meant to go together. They're talking about two separate things. And yet it's the only reason that we believe that the covenant with many is a quote unquote peace treaty. Um, and then on the other hand, I would say that what is actually being referred to there by Paul is almost certainly what Jesus was talking about in the Olivet Discourse, that before the day of the Lord, people would be marrying and given in marriage uh, up until the very day of the Lord, uh, the day that of his parousia, which is followed immediately by the day of the Lord. So what does the Bible say about it? It just says he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. I have made the case that I think you can also say that this covenant must have been a pre-existing covenant based on the way this was uh, uh, said. Okay, that's it. I could be missing something, but I don't think so. I think that's all the Bible says about what this covenant is, or at least explicitly. I think there may be some inferences here and there. Now, my personal position of what this is, and this is where I get into a little bit of speculation, um, my belief is that the covenant that he makes has something to do with the temple and starting the daily sacrifices. I make that inference because the way that it reads seems to suggest that um, the sacrifices which are stopped uh, in the next verse, he will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will bring the sacrifices and offerings to a halt as if the covenant was known to have something to do with the sacrifices in the first place because of that, but, and that could be a translation thing. Maybe the, but's not even in there in the original language, but it seems to be contrasted in every uh, uh, translation that I've seen. He will confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will bring sacrifices and offerings to a halt. In any case, whether or not the covenant is, um, something definitely to do with the, for example, Mosaic covenant, uh, which requires the daily sacrifice, uh, specifically the daily sacrifice for atonement of sins, uh, for it in the, in the Jewish mind, there really isn't a substitute for that. Um, it, it's absolutely crucial, uh, to the religion of Judaism. And as everybody knows, the only reason that it does not exist today is because it would spark a, all-out world war, um, because obviously the sacrifices happening on the Temple Mount with the Dome of the Rock would immediately cause a worldwide jihad to descend upon Israel. So that's why that's not happening. But we are told here in the Bible that it will happen. There will be sacrifices, presumably, on the Temple Mount, um, and we can infer that they happen for some time. We're actually not sure. Maybe it takes a while. Maybe the covenant is made. Um, and then the sacrifices begin at that moment, like the temple's already been built, or maybe he make, he makes it possible for them to build the temple or just a tabernacle or whatever. And then, so it takes some time to do that. And then maybe they start get enough, get it done and start sacrificing maybe a year or two into it. I don't know. We don't, we're not given any information about that, but I would say that whatever this is, it, whatever you believe the covenant that the antichrist makes with quote unquote, many uh, will be, it will be followed shortly, less than three and a half years, by sacrifices in the Judaic system again. The Antichrist, who I believe will present himself as a Messiah. And that is 
that is my position. You don't got to believe it. I know a lot of people don't, but I believe that he's, he's in it to deceive people. And he's going to, he's basically going to say, Hey guys, go ahead and start the covenant. You know that I am unable to be defeated in war. I know you guys are worried about the whole Muslim world kind of coming to destroy you. If you started the sacrifices, but you know what I can do. You know that no one can defeat me in war. You've seen this ability that I have, this new technology that I have, this whatever, whatever. And they say, well, if you're on our side and you're going to to defend us, then, yeah, we'll start the covenant and come what may. Let them all come because you can defeat them all. And indeed, that is exactly what I believe happens starting at the covenant. They start the sacrifices and the Antichrist goes to war. Which is why I think in Daniel eleven forty through forty five, that's why everybody attacks him. That's pretty interesting, and isn't it? And look who's attacking him: Assyria and Egypt. They're not exactly known as uh, the good guys in our current situation. They're known as the Muslim world. The Muslim world attacks them. The Antichrist is the defender in this war, but he completely and utterly obliterates them, makes them subservient, steals all their gold, steals all their stuff. Then he goes, uh, gets Libya. He goes into sort of Israel proper to go after, who does he go after? Jordan, Ammon, Edom, historic enemies of Israel. Although the prominent people of Ammon escape from his hands, whatever that means. He then sets up his, his HQ, his, his tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Sets up his HQ in Jerusalem. And he comes to his end, is the last line in Daniel 11, which is weird because the first line in Daniel 12 is then will come a time of, you know, that has never been seen since the history of the world, what Jesus himself quotes with regard to the great tribulation and the abomination of desolation. In other words, so does this guy resurrect from the dead or what between the end of Daniel 11 and the beginning of Daniel 1? Uh, but in any, in any case, that's right where we know of the abomination of desolation at the midpoint. So that's my uh, argument that the wars, uh, it actually fits quite nicely that if you take the covenant being made, which I can make a case that has to do with the sacrifices uh, at the Temple Mount, it can make a case that the attack on the Antichrist begins at that moment and is cleaned up, takes about three and a half years for that, that campaign to complete. He, he, he victoriously marches to Israel, sets up his camps in Israel and is killed at that point and then resurrects from the dead. His resurrection, we know, is the reason or part of the reason that he is worshipped. The whole world marvels at the beast whose deadly wound was healed, etc., etc. It's the reason that people follow him. And it's at that moment of his resurrection that he sits in the temple, declares himself to be God, ends the sacrifices. Because, of course, if he is, in fact, God and the Messiah is, in fact, returned, whether he calls himself the Messiah or God or both, which is good theology, actually, the sacrifices are no longer needed at that point. Even Jewish theologians recognize that when the Messiah comes, the sacrifices will no longer be needed. Anyway, that's sort of my personal view of the timeline from the covenant to the midpoint. But I don't, uh, you don't need to believe that or anything like that to understand the point I'm trying to make with regard to the uh, what the Bible says about the covenant, which again, is pretty minimal. A covenant is made, an already existing covenant is strengthened by the Antichrist, and sacrifices end three and a half years later. Whether or not sacrifices were a part of that first covenant is an inference. So about the UAE deal specifically, I don't see anything about that that would have anything to do with that. I suppose you could make the case that if very shortly 
sacrifices started on the temple, I would be more inclined to be like, okay, well, maybe that was it. Uh, I'm okay with throwing out my personal views if some of the other stuff falls into place. I need need to be careful with that because I think that's a great way to get tricked by the Antichrist is to compromise too much on what the Bible says. But where the Bible is a gray area, and I think it is a bit of a gray area to say the least, we've only given one verse about this so-called covenant or peace uh, deal. So... So it's a gray area. A covenant is made with many is about as general as it gets. An already existing covenant made with many, a little bit more specific, but still a gray area. So I'm willing to hear other theories about that. And I admit freely that my theory is, in fact, just a theory. Just real quick, before I uh, did this podcast, I was watching a YouTube video of a Calvary Chapel pastor uh, talking about the UAE deal, who was definitely taking the position that it had Something to do with the end times. It was like, wow, look how wonderful it is that we're in the end times. Uh, this is a definite sign. I mean, he was going hard into this UAE deal being a, uh, a definite sign of the end times. And I'm watching this. Of course, Calvary Chapel is is a pre-trib denomination by necessity. So I'm trying to figure out what his rationale here for saying that was. I mean, is because obviously if it was the peace deal, quote-unquote peace deal of 927, Daniel 9.27, then they should have been raptured before that. And then secondarily, it would mean whoever made the peace deal was the Antichrist. So so I'm listening for it. And he actually mentions both of those things. He says, no, Trump's not the Antichrist. And no, uh, I do believe we're going to be raptured before the peace deal. So in effect, he's saying this isn't the quote unquote peace deal that Al Lindsay told us to watch for and supposedly is what Daniel 9.27 is talking about. So it's not that. So then I'm like, okay, well, how is this a part of the end times again? You know, according to you, it's the one before the rapture and that didn't have to do with the Antichrist. And what is it just like you think the Bible says before the peace deal, there will be rumblings of peace deals. I mean, what on the other kind of more radical side of the spectrum you have the people saying, well, it is the peace deal, quote unquote, peace deal of Daniel 927. And uh, Trump is the Antichrist or Jared Kushner is the Antichrist. Um, and the, the, the end times has started. So in that case, they would obviously have to be not pre-tribbers to, to be consistent. And they would have to make one of those guys the Antichrist, and they would I, presumably, I, I still think they're boxed in to say, sometime in the next three and a half years, sacrifices have to start, unless they're going to spiritualize those and say, oh, really, if you think about it, sacrifices are just in your heart. It's like, ah, whatever. That's probably what they'll have to do if anybody wants to retain. And that's what anybody that has a false uh, teaching will always do, is they will revert to spiritualization of the very specific things the Bible actually says. Anyway, with the Jared Kushner thing, I mean, the rationale there is basically just because I think he, he had a lived in a building or owned a building that uh, the street number was 666. (laughs) So that's the criteria for him. And I mean, you got to give it to him. I mean, at least now there's a second thing making a peace agreement deal, but doesn't that, I I know some of you know the whole theory and I try not to go into it. Every podcast, the, the sort of like uh, a false end times scenario, the sort of false flag end times where we're going to be served up a fake version for people that don't know the Bible very well. Uh, in order that when that one is crushed, that straw man is crushed by the Antichrist and he gets to appear as the uh, the savior and everybody runs to him, thanking them for destroying the big bad enemy that was the end times, that, that theory. Well, 
this is exactly the kind of thing that I, I would expect from that. Now, I should take a step back and say, at least that one is a little closer. I mean, the Bible doesn't say, and he will live in a house on the, with the street number 666. No, it says that the number of his name is 666, and that that number will be put in our right hand or forehead um, as we pledge uh, fealty to him. That's what it says, not not just he will be tangentially, very tangentially associated with uh, uh, the 666. <laughs> anyway, but again, so that's closer. Hey, look, let's just all say if sacrifices start up in the Temple Mount in the next three and a half years, let's all reevaluate this whole situation. And if Jared Kushner, for example, starts in the next three and a half years uh, leading armies to destroy uh, Egypt and Assyria and Libya, uh, Ammon, Egypt and Moab, if Jared Kushner or anybody else uh, in in the next three and a half years uh, sits in a temple, declares himself to be God, then look, guys, I'm going to say the Antichrist is Jared Kushner. Making a peace agreement, as I've tried to detail before, it's not even about a peace agreement, I don't think. It's about strengthening an already existing covenant with many, which probably results in or at least is followed by sacrifices in Israel, the daily sacrifice particularly. So I still got to have the sacrifices in in less than three and a half years if you're going to call whatever it is the covenant that the Antichrist makes. I I think that when you see what the Bible is talking about, there's not going to be ambiguity or you got to sit and wait to see if sacrifices start in the Temple Mount. I think it's going to be absolutely clear what's happening when this happens. And I think that when we see that, we'll be like, man, I cannot believe that you said it was Jared Kushner because he lived in a house or whatever. The next thing I wanted to hit briefly was uh, another uh, mention of the Mark of the Beast. I know we have talked about it a lot in the last few episodes, uh, but it is a really hot topic and a lot of people are concerned about it. And I wanted to talk about its the reasons why the Mark of the Beast is believed to be after the midpoint because uh, some of you may have seen the the chart that I posted. You can see it on the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. I made for people who think all kinds of weird stuff is the Mark of the Beast. It's a flow chart with, I think, something like eight or nine, seven or eight, I don't know, whatever, different criteria that you have to answer uh, to see if the thing that you think is the Mark of the Beast is, in fact, the Mark of the Beast, because it has to jump through some hoops in order to actually be the mark of the beast. And one of the things that I said, the very last thing was talking about how the mark of the beast is universally believed to be uh, given forced to be taken after the midpoint of the 70th week, after the abomination of desolation, after the antichrist declares himself to be God. It's only then that the false prophet requires people to get a mark in order to, basically live in order to not be killed and to, of course, uh, be able to buy or sell and participate in society. Um, So if that's true, then whatever you're thinking is the mark of the beast probably isn't the mark of the beast because you haven't seen a temple be built. You haven't seen sacrifices start and you hadn't certainly hadn't seen a man sitting in that temple declaring himself to be God yet, which was Paul's whole point in second Thessalonians two. No, you haven't seen the day of the Lord because you haven't seen that happen. But uh, the question in this forum, which was a really good one, was, okay, first of all, uh, show your work on that. Show your work on the idea that the mark of the beast is um, uh, universally believed to be after the midpoint. And secondarily, does that really mean we shouldn't be 
thinking these various forms of technology are not the mark of the beast because it's not the midpoint. Is it, could it not be the case that some technology that could be used to be the mark of the beast uh, is the mark of the beast and therefore we should be wary of that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so first with the prove your work sort of situation, I will admit it's a little bit difficult. And part of the reason it is because there's no timing references in Revelation 13, where the mark of the beast is first introduced. And what I mean by that, there's no words like, and then the Antichrist did this, and then the false prophet did this. Because the last thing mentioned in Revelation 13, Revelation 13 is a biography chapter. It's a biography of two individuals, the Antichrist and the false prophet. The Antichrist first, the false prophet second. Goes through the, the, the their careers, basically, um, for the most part. It, it mentions a lot of stuff after that we know is after the midpoint, for example, uh, causing people to worship the beast and his image and or be killed. That is obviously after the midpoint, because it's only after the midpoint that the Antichrist declares himself to be God. And so that's the only it's only after he declares himself to be God that he requires people to worship him, obviously. Uh, so but we're not told. If we were told, it would be easy because if it said, you know, then the um, false prophet made the image of the beast, cause everybody to worship the image of the beast or to be killed, because the last thing that it says is the mark of the beast. And he caused people to get a mark on the right hand or forehead, blah, blah, blah. So if if we could just say a simple chronology and say, no, well, the mark of the beast is last in that chapter. So it's obviously after the midpoint because all the other stuff that was the midpoint was before that, including the worship of the beast. So therefore the mark of the beast is after that, but it doesn't do that. So there's no, that's no of no help one way or the other there. So really the, the reason that uh, people have believed that the mark of the beast was a function of the sitting in the temple, declaring himself to be God is more of a logical progression situation. That is to say, and probably more than anything else, it's because of the other references to the Mark of the Beast in the book of Revelation. Um, after Revelation 13, where the Mark of the Beast is mentioned twice and is referenced, uh, is first introduced, it is mentioned another six times in the book of Revelation. And each one of those times, it follows a very, very consistent, very specific pattern in the way that it is mentioned. And it is always mentioned every single time in those six times in association with the worship of the beast. So, for example, and uh, Revelation 19.20 says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, uh, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that had worshipped his image. Um, Then it says, let's say, in Revelation 16.2, And the first went and poured his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sores upon the men which had the mark of the beast, and upon them which worshipped his image. And the rest of the four instances uh, in Revelation 14 all make that same kind of declaration. It's it's the the mark getters and the worshippers are always linked together. And at least one of those six instances sounds like the worship is then followed by the mark. Uh, Revelation fourteen nine through about 11 says, And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, etc. So 
in that case, it says, if any man worships the beast in his image and receives his mark in his forehead. Now, in that sense, it kind of makes it sound like the worship is, the mark is followed by the worship or is a necessary component of the worship, not the other way around. They're not independent. Oh, these people over here got the mark years before, and then later these other people worshiped the image. It's, and of course, that's a log- logical too. In, in other words, it's logical to link these two things based on what Revelation 13 says about the false prophet and the image of the beast. So it says in Revelation 13, starting in verse 15, the second beast was empowered to give life to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and could cause those who did not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He also caused every one small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to obtain a mark on their right hand or forehead. Thus, no one allowed blah, blah, blah. So we have the introduction of the image of the beast first, this system. Again, it's not chronological. We can't say for sure that the image of the beast comes before the mark of the beast because it doesn't say, and then he caused everybody to get a mark on the right hand or forehead. But it does introduce the image of the beast and the worship it or die scenario before it introduces the mark of the beast scenario. And that verse we just read in Revelation 14 seems to suggest if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead, I think personally that the image of the beast is a real thing. I mean, it it reads like a real thing, does it not? He causes it to, to come to life and causes it to kill people that won't worship it. I think that, um, Personally, whatever it is, is something in the temple that's put in the temple. That's a very, very just a guess on my part. But I do think studying um, Revelation 17 and 18 seems to suggest the whole world is forced to go to uh, worship this thing and to bring gifts, specifically, you know, precious stones, gold and silver, et cetera, et cetera, to uh, worship this uh, beast. And I assume that that is going to be the image of the beast, not the beast itself, because the beast is not going to sit in a temple or wherever and to receive worship day and night while the whole world as on a pilgrimage to, to worship him. I'm assuming he's got better things to do than sit in the temple, but I assume that it would probably be empowered by Satan or something like that so that Satan can actually receive the worship that he uh, that he wanted from, from Jesus, right? To bow down and worship me, I'll give you the give you the kingdoms of the world or whatever he said. If any of that is true, that the mark of the beast is a function of agreeing to worship the beast in his image, then it is necessarily only after the midpoint that you can get it. Uh, Some other sort of tangential kind of things would be things like um, it's the number of his name. So you would expect that that system would only be implemented after he declared himself to be God in the temple. It's one thing to like get people excited about a guy before he's declared himself to be God and before he re- you know, apparently resurrects from the dead. But after all that stuff, when people say, wow, who's like the beast who can make war with him? Well, he's mortal head wound that was healed. Let's marvel after that. That people are like, okay, yeah, put that guy's name on my uh, right hand or forehead or the number of his name. Although it might not be obvious, after all, John says that we need to calculate it. So it, it seems uh, that that will not be an obvious thing that they're saying, put his name. But it will be, I think, uh, functionally obvious. That is to say, I am bowing a knee, pledging my allegiance to him and his system. And, of course, that's the reason for the apostasy is that you, in order to do that in the context of the abomination of desolation, there's no other way to do that except for eyes wide open apostasy. There's no way to see a guy sit in the temple, declare himself to be God, then begin to kill everyone who says that they will not worship him as God, 
And uh, then that's when people have to look at that whole scenario and say, okay, yeah, I'm on board with that. Go ahead and give me the mark. I'll worship you. And uh, uh, we get food, right? So, yeah, that's apostasy. And that's why it's not, in my opinion, I don't think the mark of the beast changes your heart or your brain or anything. It's just you go to hell because you made that dumb decision. Okay, so I also wanted to briefly touch on Dana Coverstone, who is the pastor that went kind of super viral um, not too long ago. He had dreams about the uh, some, some riots and things that would happen up uh, to the election. Again, it went really, really viral online. I mentioned it on the podcast. Um, my take on it was that, you know, he seemed genuine, and, but as I also noted, that's not the criteria for knowing whether a prophecy is, uh, true or not. A person can be totally genuine, but they could come from the school, like some of the Pentecostal schools where what we think of prophecy is not what they think of prophecy in terms of a lot of Pentecostalism version of a prophetic word is comes to them and they're taught this is how you do prophecy is you sort of take in what you see you know and try to make best guesses about the situation and then if you think it and then you say it thus says the lord uh there's probably going to be riots in in, in in november then then you probably made a educated guess and there's probably a lot of flesh in there now his situation is a little bit different it's a dream uh so that's not exactly like what i'm talking about so that's something the point in his favor um i would say that uh, he since put out some other videos and stuff. And, and one of the reasons I liked uh, and felt kind of comfortable with recommending him, other than the fact that I, most of the stuff that he said, I really do believe is going to happen and have been saying that on the podcast for a while, hyperinflation and that kind of stuff is coming. We should all prepare. Everybody should get food because there is food shortages happening, all that stuff. But, um, but one of the reasons I liked it is that he didn't seem to be saying, and this is the end times, right? Uh, there's going to be, there's going to be all these riots. There's going to be great. We all need to prepare for hyperinflation and all this other stuff, but he wasn't saying, and then I saw coming from the sky, Jesus, and it was time for the rapture in September or whatever. (laughs) But then he did say something like that. And I was like, I I can't remember what video it was, but it was pretty recently. And then he really tied in. I don't know if it was his flesh. It was like a different part of the dream, but I don't think so because I think that he actually incorporated it in the voice of God in his dream but it was like basically no way around it, no way of interpreting it any different. He was basically saying, and then the rapture is going to happen in a few months. And he did the obligatory thing. I'm not date setting. I'm not date setting, but I'm kind of date setting. Also, I heard uh, Bob on the excellent podcast, Berean's Bible Pro- uh, Prophecy Podcast, Berean's Bible Prophecy Podcast, mentioned that he also found just a little just a nitpicking thing and something Dana Coverstone said about the bride of Christ. It just didn't seem to jive with what, uh, he knew about it. And, you know, just sort of a scriptural mistake, but again, it was sort of in the voice of God. So it was kind of like, is that the voice of God? I would make a scriptural mistake. I don't think so. So I don't know if there's a lot of flesh going on or whatever. I still feel like that is okay in terms of God could use a message like that to get the church to prepare and maybe, by some way I don't understand and maybe a way I do understand God is totally in that dream. The first one, the second one, the third one, who, what, no, whatever. But the net result is a good result that is causing Christians to prepare. Putting the pieces together means that we're going to go through, I mean, it could happen in any day in terms of a spark could happen and we get into a, I don't know, a war, 
But whatever is happening, I don't know what the issue is going to be. I mean, there's certainly any number of things that could happen. I think the, the food issue is going to be one of the more interesting ones because I do think the floods in China are causing massive food shortages. Obviously, there's already food shortages in Africa because of several factors, not the least of which is COVID-19 or the locusts or whatever. But the malnutrition and the death rates in Africa right now are through the roof. And and they're still in lockdown. I mean, so that's the problem is, is that you're going to have a lot of the tin pot dictators do what they've always done every time they don't have food, which is go conquer the next territory, which is going to cause a lot of, you know, World War One kind of snowball effect treaty situations. People are going to have to go to war to fight other wars. You, you have you have entire economies destitute because of things like. You know, we think of well, all uh, the economies obviously completely wrecked. I think the GDP loss is something like in the 30%. For contrast, I think the Great Depression was 7%. The 2008 was 2 point something percent. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. But even on a country level, you've got stuff like, um, oh, I don't know, uh, entire countries whose entire economy, especially in Africa or something, are based on oil, uh, which they can't sell now because not as many people are driving the whole plane industry 90% something is shut down so they're not so they're not getting income which means there's going to be coups there lots of stuff like that's happening all over the world in other words war is happening china's probably going to do something because they're desperate because they need food because their situation is desperate because they got to feed their people or the people who revolt the only way that communism even kind of works is if you can promise people hey we'll do everything for you and in exchange we will feed you if they cannot feed them i mean they're weighing people before they go into grocery stores and I mean, it's just going to be nasty there. Millions are going to die, I think, in China. And we don't have it. China's been buying a ton of food from us and other people. But eventually, people are going to stop selling their food. And it's already starting to see signs of that. If that ever uh, happens in America where, where we make a run on the because of the COVID problems with the harvest and stuff this year, uh, and the different supply chains changing from restaurants to grocery stores and a lot of stuff getting basically thrown in the garbage or entire stocks destroyed, animal livestock and, and whatnot. Anyway, there's problems. There's problems. And if there is that kind of problem, namely food, in, in a city situation, you're going to have a lot of crime. And if you go into the Depression economically, that's guaranteed because there's eventually only so much we can print. Uh, before it starts to uh, reflect in the consumer prices of things, namely food. But my point is, is that when when all those debts come due, everybody has to realize that nobody has any jobs and nobody has any money and nobody's producing any goods, and there's not enough food to go around and the food that is there is wildly inflated, uh, then you're going to have crime. And you're not going to have a great, a fun, loving Great Depression where people starve to death nice and quietly in their country towns, you're going to have cities where, where at least in the Great Depression, people lived in the country and could farm and so on and so forth. Now people live in the cities and they're uh, going to riot. And it's not like we live in a world which is half as decent as it was in the uh, in the Great Depression. The polarity is obviously the big thing and probably the thing that will spark it off. Obviously, I've said a million times that we're being funded to be taken down. The whole point is to get us in global government. Um, so the idea is that to they couldn't take us over by traditional means, so they had to fund a global coup, internal coup, to 
um, to be revolutionaries to take over the country. And I think that that situation is more accelerated than I would have thought. And that could happen really any time. If that happens, now that's a big if. I don't know. I don't know to what degree they say if a violent revolution takes over and it looks like the people with all the money and the power are going to be complicit in just that thing. I mean, what else rhetoric is there going on right now? I mean, it seems like the rhetoric is do the violent revolution. Everybody will declare it good and say that we have to have a new system, not a different America, a new system. Obviously, that's I believe the people that are funding this whole thing. That's what they want them to do. The problem is that if you do that then what you have is a new system that people are going to be fundamentally opposed to. And that is actually kind of where I'm, I'm thinking the death comes in because I know of no situation that can accommodate people fundamentally opposed to a new socialist revolutionary government. Those situations, either you go to the re-education camps. There's a reason that re-education camps are a word that we know is because it's a necessary outgrowth of a new system, particularly a totalitarian system. I will say, go watch the film Seven Pre-Trib Problems and the Pre-Wrath Rapture. Uh, It's been released. It's doing really well. I think the reaction is better than I could have hoped. Please consider sharing it with people. There's individual sections with transcripts on the website, sevenpretribproblems.com. I think that this fourth turning includes the pre-wrath rapture. That video that I was watching today of this guy fumbling through his, his views of the end times and, and, and spewing false teachings in a respectable church uh, just sickened me to the point that I really felt like that's about to end. That these children who are uh, teaching these ridiculous things that they've been told and have never questioned, that that is almost done. And this fourth turning, this will include that nonsense. And it's time for people that know the truth, i.e. those of you that not just listen to this podcast that are 48 whatever minutes into it. I need you guys above everybody else to share it with people. And the reason is because if you are smart and you know about this stuff, the people that know you know that. And you might say, well, I don't talk. I don't speak up very much at my church about that. I'm not, you know, one of these guys that, that, that pounding on my pastor's door every minute saying, pastor, you did this thing wrong or that thing wrong. And that's precisely why you will be listened to when you send the email to your pastor or to your favorite podcaster or pre-trib teacher or whatever. You will be listened to because you've had dealings with that person before and they know you're normal. They know you're not some rando that's going to just be shoving some crazy thing down their throat. And it's because of that that they'll feel obligated to watch the thing because they think, if this guy's telling me about this and I, I I know this guy and I know this guy has been right before, that's the reason that you guys are the guys and gals to make this change uh, and are going to be a big part of this change. See you next time.